Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. I want to begin by asking you uh, your view on office supplies. Are office supplies complimentary is the question. In 2007, there was a large research study done, 2,000 employees, and they were asked if they'd ever deliberately taken office supplies home for for personal use, not just to borrow, but to keep. Nearly 20% of people, employees, admitted that they had done that. And surprisingly, the likelihood of someone saying, yes, I've taken office supplies home and, and kept them for my personal use, increased, the likelihood increased, with a person's salary increase and their education level. So 13% of employees with a high school education said they had pilfered office supplies, compared with 25% of university graduates. I'm looking at you over here, these uni graduates to come. Only 11% of employees who make not much more than the minimum wage admitted to stealing office supplies, and most of them did it discreetly. 25% nearly of those who make significantly more money did it openly and admitted to it freely. In fact, employees in the highest salary range admitted helping themselves to company mobile phones and computers even, and even did that in more obvious ways that they were happy for others to know about. See, it seems a pretty good thing that we don't have much office supplies around Islington Baptist Church. And even if Matt or I did take a piece of computer, for example, you probably know on the next Sunday because there'd be no slides on the screen. See, why might these people who clearly could afford the supplies be so comfortable to take the items? In other words, what are their motivations to do it, even in full view of other workers, of their peers? What do their methods suggest about their motivations? Because methods do often reveal motivations, don't they? For these well-paid workers, the study concluded that their motivation was not need, they had no need for pens at home, but entitlement. That was the motivation. And their methods, just taking the items, revealed that entitlement. For the less paid workers, the methods were more secretive, which suggests that the motives were more about personal gain actually getting the, 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 the product, the pens, or whatever they may be. Our methods, how we do things in life, often reveal our motives, what we desire deeper down. And so let me ask, what are your methods? What are our methods in life, how we go about doing things, whether in this context or throughout the week? What do they reveal about our motives? Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting you all steal office supplies, What about in how you drive, for example? What does your method reveal about your motive? I pay my road taxes. I have a place to be now, and so therefore, beep, this is my road. Or maybe it's how you communicate or, or how you choose not to communicate in some instances. Maybe how you present yourself as really, really busy, motivated possibly by a desire to appear important. 
or going out of our way to be caring and helpful because we're motivated by a desire to see others flourish in life. As we continue our series in in 1 Thessalonians, we pick up in chapter 2, we get a deep look into the motivations of Paul, who wrote this, and his co-workers with him, Silas and Timothy. These first century Christians who travelled widely to tell of the risen Jesus, all around this space, around the Mediterranean. They went to tell of the risen Jesus, they went to establish new churches, and we see their motivations as we see their methods. And it seems there's a backstory here that we don't know all about as we read this letter. You know, you pick up a letter and you think there's something going on that's the context for this. What's happening in Thessalonica? Now, as we think back, and we look back to Acts last week, Paul was only in Thessalonica just a few weeks, it's probably most likely. And by modern church planting standard, that's a pretty short time to start something new, a new church. Imagine a business franchise even, that the founder of a business goes to a new place to set up a new whatever, McDonald's or some other franchise store, and they're there just a few weeks and then then they leave. If it's something new, you're going to need longer than that, aren't you, for it to be established? And we saw last week that, that, that a mob of Jews were jealous of Paul and Silas, of, of people becoming Christians there in Thessalonica and, and following their teaching about Jesus. And so they round up some bad characters from the marketplace and they form a mob and they start a riot in the city and they go in search of Paul and Silas and they cause the crowd and, and various city leaders to get angry. And so Paul and Silas get sent away by the Christian believers there in kind of self-protection and to protect them. So with that backdrop, I think we can safely assume that Paul might be worried about the church and how it's going in Thessalonica and about those new Christians and how they're going there. You know, imagine... Imagine missionaries, for example, heading to a remote place that's never heard of Jesus and they go and they share with the people there and the the people believe and they meet every day for a week or two and a church has begun and then they turn up the next Sunday and where's the missionaries gone? They've, they've, They've left. Now, it's not actually uncommon for this kind of thing to happen, whether it be because of violence or whether it be because of sickness or some other thing or running out of finances missionaries deciding to go or being forced out. Maybe it's a government crackdown that's caused it, like it happened in, in Myanmar or China or India over the past 20 or 30 years. What happens to the believers in that place then? This new fellowship gathering has been established and the missionaries were there to help it happen and now they're gone so suddenly. Missionaries often speak of being worried about the people yearning to be back there if they only could be. So Paul and Silas seem worried about this fledgling church in Thessalonica? Had the opposition that led to them leaving now turned on the Christians there? Had people started questioning Paul's motives and his practices? Was this like just a short hit-and-run visit to a town and actually Paul didn't really care for us? Why did he run away when it got hard? We can imagine the narratives that are circling around in the area. But Paul's worried about them. He doesn't want his message, God's message, to be undermined by those kinds of stories circling, circling. And he knows there's going to be opposition against this little startup church that appeared to be anti-Jewish to those who were Jewish and anti-Roman to those who were Roman, particularly the Roman authorities, 
it will be difficult for this little church to operate and flourish. And so Paul sends Timothy to find out how they're going. And I think we get hints of Timothy's report all through this letter, like here in the beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, Paul, Silas, and Timothy writing this, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. There's three things here. God's transformation in the people at Thessalonica. Results, if you like. And then there's Paul and his companions' significant suffering that's happening. And they're courageously sharing the good news of Jesus. Transformation by God, Paul's suffering, and then they're sharing courageously. See, for Paul, getting there had been really hard. And staying there even as long as he did seemed hard. But God empowered them to stay despite the suffering. And it wasn't a waste of effort, their sharing, even amid suffering. It wasn't just a disappearing of, of empty words, like, you know, a mist that just kind of disappears, it's gone. Their words weren't like that. People's lives were changed. We read that it was not without results. We read last week of the people in Thessalonica's work and, and labor, their, their, their faith and love and hope, their endurance. God had been working to transform them. And so Paul here is pointing them back to the past, to that visit, to God's work in them, to shore up their confidence now in what Paul's about to say to them, and as they continue to live their, their lives trusting in Jesus. And so from, the, from verse 3, the angle changes from talking about the past to about the present. He's, he's led them to a place of trust and confidence, hopefully. He's, he's, he's written, and now he talks about what's to come, the present. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Why did Paul visit? Why appeal to them now? Why write this letter? What's his motivation? Is it truth or is it error? Is he, is he lying? Is it pure or impure? Is there some kind of uh, sexual motivation even? If we read them later in the letter, we pick up maybe there's some talk of that happening. Is there integrity issues or is, is there trickery going on? And is he just baiting them to try and catch them out from his, for his own advantage? These might be some of the stories circulating. Well, no, Paul argues, on the contrary. We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. We never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you, or from anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. It's God's message, which ultimately is judged by God, who tests and bears witness to Paul's example, his ministry. And so as much as Paul is saying here, well, God is the judge, he's actually also opening up himself to scrutiny by saying that. God is our witness of how we acted in these circumstances, but I'm telling you this, and so therefore they can look onto his life and test it themselves by their own memory of, of, his, of his visit to them. He's saying, see for yourself if your memory of our lives with you aligns with the message we share. 
And so he points back again in the next section to his past visit so that they can do that testing. Look for yourself, he's saying, verse 5 to 12. Now, I wonder if you've ever experienced some of the methods being described here, maybe in a setting like a church, in some kind of Christian ministry, flattery, greed, putting on a mask. Maybe you've picked it up in a phone call you've received, a scam of some kind. Only this week, I think I received seven calls from the wine concierge group. Now, it was an AI that tried to answer my questions as I uh, told them I didn't want to hear from them and no, one, no, no longer wanted to be on their mailing list. I ended up jumping on their website and sending them a message saying, please take me off or I'll report you. It's a scam. They're trying to, to get me to spend money I don't need to or want to spend to them, with them. Maybe it's the location of the number that gives it away. You know, I'm amazed how, many, how much money I have in Nigerian bank accounts. Maybe it's flattery that makes you feel good about yourself, turns on your emotional brain into hyperdrive, and, and then you get your logic, logic just drops, and so you get trapped, scammed. See, the method a person uses often reveals something of the motivation of their request. And so what about in the church amongst Christians? People's method of ministry reveals their motivation. And so, from verse 7 to 12, Paul describes his methods, Silas and Timothy with him, their methods in order to prove their motives as being truthful and right and pure, full of integrity. And there's four images he gives that describe this method. His ministry is like children. Ministry is like mothers of children. Ministry that is as or like brothers and sisters together. Ministry that is like a father. It's all within that realm of the family and relationships within. So the first, like children. We're not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like children, young children among you. Now, Paul here is not talking about being silly among them. Children are especially good at that. But I think he's talking here about kind of being small, not overbearing, certainly not abusing the authority that they had, being humble, adopting the posture of a learner, willing to serve by doing things that are hard or unseen or even the things that only that person could particularly do, and so enabling and empowering other people. The children of the first century lacked social power. In ministry... We are to take that posture of being like a child as we serve one another. Which I think means we need to recognize some things like the dynamics of how power works and mitigate some of the impacts of that at least. Now, whether it be positional power, if you've got some kind of title or position, or power that comes from being part of a dominant cultural group, or from wealth, or the authority that comes from being in a culture that might have a higher power distance separation, like in Eastern and many African cultures. Even a spiritual authority, where our Bible knowledge and the way we wield it in conversations can actually be a power tool and leave no room for alternative opinions in the way we handle it. If any of those power dynamics might be in play, 
The person in the position of power is called to be like a child, to be aware of that, to even name it here as Paul does. As apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority and then go to the opposite extreme where needed to not take advantage of people or be seen to take advantage of people. You know, it's often simpler, isn't it, to get an outcome when you use your power? But what kind of outcome is that? Is that the best thing for the faith of the other person? Why are they changing their behavior? And will it last when you're suddenly not the one there asserting your power over them? Christian leaders are to be like children, serving humbly. The second image is like mothers. Just as a nursing mother cares for her child, so we cared for you. Because you, we, we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Isn't that just a wonderful image? Our lives as well. Delighted to share both the gospel and their lives. This is a picture of extreme care that knows no limitations. As a mother's care for her child. Paul's not aloof or distant coming in to preach and then just forgetting about them, slipping out the back door. I've read of of a number of of famous preachers who employ uh, what are called handlers so that when they come and preach in a large, filled, packed auditorium, they can slip out the back and never have to engage with the mob, the people. That's not Paul's example. Paul and his companions shared not only the gospel of God, but their lives as well. He allows people to see his whole life, the best and the worst of it, which I think happens for us when we serve alongside each other. It's one of the reasons we'd love to see more ministry teams here at church, so that we can serve alongside each other rather than just be on a roster. We grow from other people when we serve alongside them when we see each other tired, when we see each other stressed, maybe you've done missions or camps when you see the best and the worst of people, when you see each other with their children, when you see each other driving, eating, recovering from tough times. See, all of these things done together provide us with an example of -of whole-of-life Christian service. These things build trust And so Paul's saying here, think back to my ministry with you. When we were amongst you, my life fully lived among you. My tiredness as I worked making tents by night so I could serve you by day. Think back to that. We were like mothers among you. The third image is this, brothers and sisters. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Now, brothers and sisters, siblings, they have interesting relationships, right? One of the things they're meant to be is for each other, helping each other, working together, supporting each other as equal members of the household. See, Paul could have rightfully been supported by the people there, but he determined not to add any burden financially to them and not to confuse, so they wouldn't confuse the message of Jesus with some kind of funding of ministry and financial gain. This picture of, of serving brother-sister-sibling relationships might not be a picture of siblingship in your household, as you remember back to childhood or experience it now, but it is a picture of siblingship in the New Testament. Christians loving one another as equal partners in Christ to make a way for inclusion and difference so that we can 
support one another to know Christ. Christian brothers and sisters, Christian leaders are to be brothers and sisters in how we operate together with one another. The final image is this, that of fathers. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Just a couple of weeks ago, um, I had a, a medical appointment and I spoke with the um, practitioner who shared that she was really, really anxious as a child in, in social settings. Her dad's approach to dealing with that was to punish her and threaten her with punishment if she didn't do the social thing appropriately. She said her dad was very keen for her to act in a certain way. He was really aspirational for her. And fathers are often very aspirational for their children, hold particularly high standards often. But what does the method reveal about the motivation? Paul has this fatherly, highly aspirational desire for these Christians at Thessalonica that their lives might be worthy of God in how they live. But what was the method in getting them there? It's not scolding, but encouraging, comforting, urging. There's a strength to these words, but there's also a softness to them, isn't there? Courageous and committed love, providing an example. Holy, righteous, blameless among them. And so in this picture of fatherhood, I think we get an insight into Paul's deep desire for the Christians at Thessalonica, that they grow, that they flourish in their faith. That's my desire for my children. It's our desire as pastors for you. And I hope it's your desire for those who you get to influence and lead. Because spiritually, we're all children. We're all children. We all need encouragement. Why do you encourage a child? To give them confidence, courage for their tender hearts. Why do you comfort them? Because suffering and hardship are real. An insecure and fearful child struggles with trust, isn't likely to grow, and so we need to comfort them. Why urge a child? Because sometimes we all need a bit of a push at times. Change hurts. It has a cost. We have to give something up. And later in the letter, we're going to hear more of this urging, pushing language, particularly around giving up in terms of sexual immorality, sexual sin. Now think about your own life. When was the last time you made a significant change without someone else giving you a little bit of a nudge? Maybe a move or a change of job or a change in how you approach a relationship, maybe seeking forgiveness from someone else or saying sorry. Generally, we need a bit of an urge, a nudge. Christian leaders need to be like fathers to one another. Now, it's worth noting that each of these attributes are not limited to those particular people. We all know people who don't fit these norms, mums who are brilliant at urging, for example, comforting. They're just norms, at least norms in, in Paul's day. Just images, pictures of how Paul and his co-workers sought to act amongst the, people, the Christians at Thessalonica but I think that means they're also examples for us that we might consider. And so as you look at these, which of the four 
do you think you're strong at? Which of the four do you think you might be being prompted, nudged, urged to work on? You know, if this was a, a strength assessment, what might the line look like for you? See, Paul's example with Silas and, and Timothy was an example he was willing to put on display. You know how, like in development applications, there's a call for submissions and, and feedback? Paul says, my life is that at the moment. Uh, I put it out there. Call for submissions, call for feedback. He opens up his plans and his actions, his methods to reveal his motivations. So the question becomes, well, how did the, Thessalon- how did, how did the Thessalonians respond? What was their response to this? We have to read on, actually, to find out a little more there. Maybe you wait for next week or you could read on yourself. For now, I just want us to consider why Paul tells them all this about his past visit. Weren't they there when he visited? Like, didn't they already know this? Didn't we already see from chapter 1? They are an exemplar church. So why tell them all this now? Well, I think we need to remember this, that Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're worried about them. And so they want to tell them their heart. They're worried about opposition. They're worried about other people coming in and, and telling them different things, to believe different things. They're worried. The Thessalonians started so well. Maybe they're worried that spiritual amnesia might have set in, possibly questioning of Paul's motives in coming. It was just a hit-and-run visit, they might be thinking. He doesn't care. He sent Timothy to find out about us because he didn't want to come himself. We can imagine the stories that might be circulating. Paul's saying, no, no, no. My motives, our motives are good and right. Our methods demonstrate that. And we saw right through this whole section that their faith is not actually dependent on Paul, though he yearns for them. They can do it by themselves in one sense because look at the gospel. Look whose message it is. Not the message of Paul, it's the gospel of God, God who is sovereign, God who calls them. Their faith is not based on turning to Paul, but to God, to serve him, as we heard in the memory verse. Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so let me ask as we finish, what is the basis of your faith? Is it a particular leader or a particular church, a particular history here or in another church? That's vitally important in one sense, but it's not the basis of true faith. It's the gospel of God that is that. And what are your motives for ministry as you serve, as you have opportunity to influence other people in your life? What are your motives? And what are the methods reveal? As we grow as a church, we pray, We need to ask these questions. Are we overly pushy in seeking to get people to serve? Are we even hiding some information? Maybe because we're motivated to hit some numerical target or something like that, or be more efficient. In one sense, they're they're good things. More people at church is great. More efficiency is helpful. But those goals, goals don't excuse ungodly conduct, ungodly methods. The greatest goal must be in view all the time. People turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That is the most important thing, the basis of our faith.
And so it must inform our method because it's our motivation. Let me pray that it might be just that. Our great God, we, we thank and praise you for this, this chapter, this encouragement, as we get just a, such a close-up view of Paul and his ministry to this group of Christians at Thessalonica. And so we pray as we take encouragement and hope from it that you might shape our ministry with this model that's ultimately founded on the good news of Jesus and his model for us, self-sacrificial leadership. And we pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you.